Hi, everyone. Oh, wow. Well, it looks like they are throwing a parade at the school next to my apartment. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Josh McCormack, and this is Salute Talks. The way in which we process information can impact significant aspects of our lives. The choices we make, the issues we do or do not support, or even if we care to tackle certain problems. When it comes to health, how information is spread can save lives, or it can lead to further sickness and harm. As the COVID-19 pandemic sweeps throughout the U.S., Medical experts say that mixed messaging coming from civic leaders in Washington has led to worse outcomes for everyday individuals and a successful stop to the spread. Today, Dr. Jason Rosenfeld, the Assistant Director of Global Health at UT Health San Antonio, joins Salute Talks to discuss his career in health communications and how that experience is informing his work to disseminate knowledge about the outbreak. So can you start off and give our listeners a little bit of a background on you. What have you done to get where you are today and what are you doing now? <laughs> How have I gotten to where I am now? It's a, it's, it's been a, it's been a great journey actually. Um, my career in public health began pretty shortly after I graduated from university where I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with my life and career at that time. Um, I had just graduated from Duke with a degree in political science and knew that I was interested in traveling. I was interested in service. Um, but beyond that, I, I didn't I didn't have a huge amount of direction. And so a friend of mine actually recommended that I look into the United States Peace Corps, which I did and ended up uh, accepting a posting in Ghana and <clears throat> West Africa as a community water sanitation health advisor, where I spent the majority of my time in a rural village of about 9,000 people in the middle part of the country, uh, designing health education campaigns to contribute to the national guinea worm eradication cam uh, campaign. Guinea worm is a waterborne parasite that is pretty easily prevented if you, A, don't drink the contaminated water, uh, B, filter that water through something as simple as a cloth shirt, or C, just don't step into the water if you have a, an active infection. And so during that time, I would spend a lot of time educating both in my community that I lived and worked with, but also in surrounding communities, and was always shocked at how many people knew exactly how to prevent guinea worm. You know, I would say 80% of the audiences that I would speak with could answer the correct, uh, could answer prevention questions correctly. And then I would ask them the question, well, how many of you got guinea worm the previous year? And then an uncomfortable giggle and about, you know, another half of that population would then raise their hands. And so this disconnect between knowledge and health behaviors was really frustrating for me that ultimately led me to pursuing my master's in public health degree at Emory University in the behavioral sciences and health education. 
Yeah, and there's some really interesting points that I, I would love to come back to about your work that led up to the position that you're in today. But but first, I'm wondering, can you um, give us a little bit of a background on um, where where you're from? You know, maybe things throughout your life that kind of urged you to have that desire to help folks who need to understand these really critical health you know, all these critical health information that can keep them safe. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I come from a family of educators and physicians predominantly. Um, My father is a now retired professor of neonatology up at UT Southwestern. Um, my wife, my, my wife, my mother is a retired pediatric emergency room nurse. Um, and so I grew up, uh, surrounded by healthcare and, um, in a, in a research field and just knew from the beginning, I've always been service oriented. It's just been something that has been inherent to me. Um, and so what, what's actually really funny is when I went to university and I studied political science after initially wanting to be a, a, a medical doctor, um, organic chemistry and I did not get along very well. So that quickly determined which direction I was going to go. Um, but my parents laughed at me because I graduated with this degree in political science. And then I went off to serve in the United States Peace Corps as a health advisor. And, you know, their joke was as far as I wanted to run away from healthcare, there's no way that I could get away from it. And so, um, I think it's just always been there, you know, both um, in what my parents have done and what they instilled in me, but also just this this understanding that I come from a place of privilege and I, I recognize that and I try to use the privilege and the opportunities that have been afforded to me to try to help other communities that have less um, try to reach their greatest potential and live their best lives. You know, something that you said earlier that I found interesting, I would love to um, hear you expand a little bit more on was, you said that when you were in some of these communities trying to um, present this information in a way that would result in that action, which is that vital component that you also mentioned. Um, I'm wondering, you had said that it was frustrating to have this information and to try to spread it in these communities, but the roadblocks that you would hit would be frustrating. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Like, what were those roadblocks, and why were those so frustrating in this effort that you were trying to lead? Yeah, I I could probably think of a few stories, and and I'll try to pinpoint one or two as as I'm talking here. The the most immediate one was just simply this, this fact that people people know things right i mean if you if you think about smoking if you talk to a smoker today they'll tell you oh yeah we know that this is bad for me and there's a high likelihood that i'll get cancer and die prematurely because of it but yet they're still going to smoke right um and and in the same vein internationally i mean you know a lot of communities that i've worked in know that if they poop outside of their house, that there's a there's a potential risk of exposure there, but yet yet they do it. And so that that was what I found frustrating was that just because you know something does not mean that you will actually do something to protect yourself or to improve your health outcomes. 
And, and that was what ultimately led me to the work that I do now, because in my mind, I have, I have, I, and I didn't discover this, somebody else has. And again, I don't think it was anything, you know, brand new, but this idea of the social process by which change occurs, where, you know, behavior is determined by the individual themselves, their characteristics, their knowledge, their attitudes, but that's a very small piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle, which is really important, is the collective norms and values around that behavior, whether or not it's acceptable to smoke, whether or not everybody else is pooping outside their house, whether or not um, you know it's normal to have sex before you're 15. All of those factors play into the individual choice to engage or not engage in a behavior but then that in and of itself is still incomplete because there's an environment in which we live which we now call the social and structural determinants of health you want me to eat nutritious food well i can't because i live in a food desert and there's no fruits and vegetables you want me to wash my hands three times a day well it's impossible because i have to walk three miles back and forth to be able to get enough water just to cook the meals that I need to prepare that day. And so it's a complex interaction, but oftentimes our educational efforts around behavior change focus on the individual to the detriment of the social and the ecological, the environmental aspects that determine our behavior. And, and that's what's been fun about working with community health clubs, which is this model that I've been describing um, in general terms is that through the collective we're able to achieve change at an individual level as well as at a environmental level because change within the social and structural determinants of health only will happen when you have entire groups working together to affect change um, and then that group applies gentle pressure to the individual to achieve change on their own level and so that was what I was getting at in terms of some of those frustrations. But there's also other things in terms of just typically, you know, attitudinal pieces. I, I remember my one of my early days working in Haiti where we were launching a community health club program and it was in a community that I had never worked in. And there was about three gentlemen in this training and it was a week-long training the first couple of days went well day three it became clear that they just were going to be a pain in my side to be a pain in my side and primarily because i was a white foreigner right i didn't speak Haitian um, i didn't speak french and they were they were playing some power dynamics which i tried not to feed into um, but at points I did get frustrated, but really they were testing me to see what was my metal like, how how far were was I willing to let them push me before I broke. Um, and, but at the end of the day, what I liked was that I persisted, you know, I might have had one very frustrating moment with them, which they laughed about. But at the end of the day, I think we ended on a level of mutual respect and they understood that I was not trying to dictate to them, which I t think is also another failure of many traditional health education programs that we tell people this is what you have to do, right? So you do this, and if you don't do it, then you're, you're bad, you're non-compliant, whatever it might be. But it, what we were trying to say was here's information, here's, here's the facts, now you decide what the best way to proceed for your own culture within your own context is. And I think they understood that at the end of the day, and what we were doing was empowering them to take that knowledge, disseminate it, and do something with it. Um, I'm wondering, transferring like that kind of ideology into America, 
is that something that you think that public health officials here um, will sometimes uh, struggle to comprehend is that even though we all live in the same country, um, depending on your family's place of origin, your race, uh, the where you live, you know, what your socioeconomic status is, um, I think that that whole idea of dictating to an audience can sometimes even, you know, public health officials can get into the weeds when they're dealing with communities, even in their own country. Have you found that to be true? Yeah, well, I think it, it's it's an unfortunate aspect of, of healthcare delivery writ large and even public health practice writ large is we, we tend to, to homogenize everyone. Um, I think we get, we've gotten better at it, but we still tend mm. to homogenize everyone and say, well, one message should be sufficient for everybody to internalize and to, to make sense of. And, and whether it's kind of, you know, baked in structural racism or, um, or other dimensions of our country as it is, I, I, I'm not sure that I can speak to, but, but I do think that from a communications perspective, if we're looking at kind of national and even state level approaches, I do think there is that general sense of homogenization. But when you get down into the field and you're working with, you know, smaller nonprofit organizations and even hospital systems, I do think they're, we're getting better at it um, in terms of engaging community and co-creating information. But I do think it's still an area that we have a lot of, er uh, of room to improve is this kind of co-creation, not just of knowledge, but also of programming where you know we assume because it worked in one place in a randomized control trial that we can now replicate it everywhere else and then we get frustrated when it doesn't work because we didn't culturally tailor and adapt it or we didn't um, make the necessary community introductions um, but it is an area at least from my limited observations over the last few years of, of programming in lower rio grande valley that it's an area that i think we can definitely improve upon we'll be right back Hi, this is Rosalie Aguilar, Project Coordinator of Salud America. As an organization, our mission is to help create a culture of health equity for Latinos. We work toward this goal through countless hours of research, writing, editing, and producing. If you believe in what we're doing and want to support that work, please consider donating to our cause at salud.to backslash donate. Thank you. Hi, this is Rebecca Jones, Assistant Director of the Institute for Health Promotion Research. Our organization serves as a research powerhouse to fuel Salute America's content. Here at the IHPR, we investigate the current state of health inequities in America and how that impacts the Latino community. Our research investigates cancer, chronic disease, and other health disparities among Latinos in South Texas and beyond. To learn more about the IHPR and our work, visit salute.to backslash IHPR. Thanks. Mm. And, I, and I think it's interesting because, um, you know, going back to your story about your experiences in Haiti, I think that, you know, one of the things that I gleaned from your story was that ultimately 
there was a certain level of distrust by members of these communities because this is their home and someone is that they don't know from Adam is coming in and, and, you know, trying to, in our eyes, help, but in their eyes, they don't know for sure. Um, is, is that a part of it too, is that as health workers, as, you know, people who try to spread information, um, even other organizations like media or journalists, groups like that, you have to gain a certain level of trust, meet someone where they're at in order to really see effective change. Oh, definitely. And, and you know, I'll, I'll circle all the way back to my Peace Corps time and then come to present times. When I, when I arrived in my village, I was the first, and I shouldn't say my village, the village where I served, I was the first Peace Corps volunteer to serve in that community. And I think there had been fairly limited access and exposure to foreigners and in particular and, and white people specifically. And so my neighbors that I lived around, um, did not understand why I was there. And they kept asking this question, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> um, because I would tell them these stories of America. I'd talk about the roads and the cars and the, the, the uh, IT and the buildings. And they just didn't get why I would leave that behind to come and live in a village with them for two years to try to help. And, and it took, I mean, it took me a good year of just being with people for them to finally accept the fact that I was there and then also accept the fact that I wasn't going to do things for them because there was this sense of, oh, well, he's here. Now all of our problems are solved. And I made it very clear in talking with the, the village uh, elders, the village chief and the uh, elected political leaders there that I wasn't there to do. I was there to facilitate, to help identify problems and help identify solutions. And then it was one of those things where I would say probably with six months left in my two-year services is when that dime dropped. And they're like, oh, you know, we've actually learned quite a lot. We can do things. And, and I was happy to hear that a year after I left, one of the big initiatives that we had launched as a community was to raise funds to build what they call a small town water system, which is basically you have one well, deep water well drill that then pumps water into a big overhead tank. And then you have pipes that run out to different parts of the community. And apparently from what I was told by the volunteer that followed me about a year after I left, that actually came to fruition. So that was a, that was a big success. And it was nice to see that that time that I had spent, um, building the trust and and helping people understand that they do have power and knowledge in themselves that they can achieve without necessarily somebody else solving their problems for them. For sure. Can you go, um, and you discussed it a little bit um, before, but can you give um, just kind of a more in-depth um, kind of overview, I guess, of the work that you were doing um, prior to this pandemic? What, what were you doing in the Rio Grande Valley and, you know, um, just kind of yeah, go over that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, so like I said, I've been working with this model of community-based participatory education uh, called Community Health Clubs since 2007. It's uh, it, the idea behind the club is that it's a voluntary group of in Africa, anywhere between 50 to 150, 200 people who meet on a regular basis every week at the same place at the same time on the same day 
to engage in participatory knowledge creation, right? Using structured curricula with a trained facilitator with the goal of at the end of every session, there's a homework assignment, something that we collectively are going to do to apply the knowledge that we've learned in our households. And then collectively as a community, we will hold each other accountable to those new behavioral changes. So we'll offer support to each other, but we'll also offer positive peer pressure to, to maintain adherence. And so just a quick example from our international programs is, you know, we focus predominantly on WASH, as I was describing before. And, you know, one of our common topics is safe water storage, right? Because most communities have to take water from a public source, store it in their house. And one of the practices that we recommend, particularly if people are using buckets, is that they put a tight fitting lid on top of that bucket to keep flies, keep fingers, keep animals out of that drinking water source. And so oftentimes that is a practice that communities will agree upon. And then what we, what we teach these communities is that as they're visiting each other, which we recommend they do, is that if they notice that these practices aren't being um, adhered to, then they can apply that pressure. So I might come to your house and see, oh, you're, you're, you know, I'd like to have a glass of water. And I take a peek into your your kitchen and I see that your bucket is uncovered and I say, well, you know, I changed my mind, you know, that that water is probably not clean and I don't want to get myself sick. And so in, in that gentle way, the community is holding itself accountable to behaviors that they themselves have prioritized. And then the external force, myself, a government agency then provides that additional reinforcement and support to the communities, but the process itself happens, the change process itself happens entirely internally to the community itself. So I was fortunate in 2017 to have a pediatric resident, Dr. Monica Ruiz, who's from Rio Grande City, uh, approach me and ask if we could do a research project together in the Valley to test the implementation of community health clubs via promotoras compared to traditional promotora education, which is where you train somebody as a promotora and then they go off and, you know, maybe implement the curriculum. Um, and so we launched this program with a focus on Zika prevention in 2017, because at that time Zika was knocking on the door. Um, we're fortunate that we never got the outbreak that, that I think people had anticipated, but we were able to successfully launch this program via six community health workers who created six clubs, and we had about 40 people participate in that program. And at the end of it, um, it was a six-week curriculum, very engaging, every session had homework, just like our community health clubs overseas. And at the end of that six weeks, we did some focus groups with the participants and, and, and interviews with the promotoras and said, okay, well, what do you think? Did you like this? Would you like to keep doing? And there was a resounding, yes, we want more, and we'd like to do different topics. Um, and so we said, well, what topic? And they told us, well, nutrition and physical activity are important, uh, mental wellness, uh, diabetes, obesity, all these things. And so we identified a 10-session curriculum called Salud Con Sabor Latino, and that's focused on nutrition and physical activity education. 
this curriculum was developed by the Esperanza organization based out of um, Arizona, and they gave us permission to make some slight adaptations to it and use it. But what I loved about this curriculum is that baked into it was already this idea of praxis, because every third session was a cooking session where the participants will come together and learn how to cook meals that they are used to cooking, making things like tortillas, um, or pozole or other things that the Latin community, Latinx community across South, Southern United States are used to cooking, but with different ingredients. And the idea is there, we're now applying the nutritional knowledge that we're learning in theory, but we're practicing it together, getting a chance to do things that are different, like making tortillas using applesauce, which everyone said, no, it's not possible. And then they do it and they come out and they say, wow, that actually tasted just as good as the regular way we make tortillas. Um, and so we launched that curriculum, trained another, uh, we added four more promotores to that program. We ended up with 10 clubs with over 150 participants across those 10 clubs. Um, and again, documented some, some significant knowledge changes, definitely some changes in terms of people's reported eating behaviors, significant increase in the amount of physical activity that people were participating in, because again, they were doing physical activity with each other. And then they said, we want more. And so now we're in this process of continuing to engage with six of those clubs, with about 60 members who have been with us for about two and a half years, and every, I'd say every probably three or four months, we tried to deliver a new curriculum. We provide leadership training for our club members. So um, how do you advocate for yourself? How do you identify needs? We did a photo voice project with our community members earlier this year, which we actually need to wrap up. Um, we had to put it on pause because of the COVID pandemic, but hopefully once things lighten up again, we'll be able to go back there and, and see the results of that project where participants were taking pictures of things that either affect their health positively or negatively within their community, focused on women's health issues. So it's very exciting that we were able to take this model pretty much wholesale from Africa um, and replicate it down here in the lower Rio Grande Valley, and that will see the same positive reactions from our both our promotores as well as our community members. And the piece that I'm most excited about is that we seem to be providing this nexus of addressing people's holistic health. And, and by that, I mean the WHO definition of physical, mental, and social well-being. And by simply by talking about physical activity and nutrition over a 10 week period, our participants were telling us that their mental health was improving and that they were feeling less isolated and less lonely. And so now we're in the process of trying to rejig our, our evaluation tools to really document that, that intersection and those relationships between the physical, the mental and the social. Wow. That's a lot of uh, really amazing work that you guys are able to implement. And, you know, I'm obviously seeing that kind of change in the community just must be um, just really amazing as well. During this, during this time, as listeners, whether they're here in San Antonio or, you know, in other parts of the country are listening to this, um, and, and they find that the work that you're doing is inspirational, impactful, um, and they want to implement that in their community. Um, I, I was wondering 
maybe what your call to action would be or any advice on how can everyday folks who maybe don't have a lot of background in this, what are some things that they can do to advocate for and implement better healthcare practices, information spreading, maybe even creating a health club um, in their towns? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. Um, and my response is, I mean, all health is local, right? And so even if we're not happy with the way that our healthcare system is running, or if we are happy, regardless, you know, the, the, the things that affect our well-being are the things that are right around us. It's our family life, it's our social life, it's where we work, it's the environment and all of those places. And to change those doesn't require federal legislation. It doesn't require us to elect the right politician. In my mind, what it requires is grassroots democracy, coming together, getting to know your neighbor, um, building the relationships with those in your neighborhood so that you can collectively decide what is important to us and how do we address the issues that are affecting our health and well-being in our neighborhood. If you want, if you can't go running because of, or walking because of stray dogs in your neighborhood or lacks a, lack of sidewalks, the only way that gets resolved is when enough people raise their voice together to their local counselor um, to make that change happen. And usually people will respond when there's a large enough mass of people demanding this. And so my call to action is um, take action at home, whether it is literally in your home with your family, you can make that change. It gets harder the farther out the concentric circles go, but it's not impossible. And, and you know, part of the, the, Part of the reason I see the health of Americans in general declining over the last few decades is because we have ignored the important social piece of our well-being. And that is something that only we can do by, again, getting out and knowing our neighbors, engaging with our neighbors socially, building the social networks among ourselves. And when we are socially healthy, when we are less isolated and we have a healthy social relationship, then it has knock-on effects for both our physical and our mental health. Thanks to Dr. Rosenfeld for joining Salute Talks. To learn more about him and his work, visit this episode's webpage at salute.to slash salute talks. Salute Talks is produced by Josh McCormick and the media team at Salute America. It is executive produced by Dr. Amelie Ramirez. The music heard on this podcast is produced by Bonus Points. Find Salute America online at salute-america.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other social platforms at Salute America. Watch our award-winning videos on YouTube by visiting salute.to slash video. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening, and as always, we hope you enjoyed.